0: Trigger warning. Trigger warning. This is a reminder. You have got a trigger. (laughs) Do you know what your trigger is? It's that soft spot, that bruise that makes you see red when it gets pushed. And I don't know what your trigger is. Only you know that. This podcast strives to have thoughtful adult conversation about human issues. But I'm not a professional and I would describe lots of the topics here as things that would trigger someone. So if you find yourself being triggered by any of the issues that we talk about here, I'm asking you now to please take that opportunity to simply find something else to listen to. Also, this is not professional advice, ever, (laughs) even when we talk to professionals. This is only casual conversation that is meant to promote for mindfulness and examine our own egos. Thanks.
1: This is about how I befriended my sexual harasser. in this delusion to be a good person or like a better person or have control of a situation. So I I think it kind of goes to that idea of forgiveness and who do you keep in your life? I think maybe my uh, philosophy on forgiveness sort of encompasses some of, I think my wider philosophy. I grew up in the Bible Belt where, you know, forgiveness is key. You have to forgive people who have done you wrong. I think that's so stupid. Why is it on someone who has been wronged to forgive somebody who has wronged them? So I sort of see friendship relationships of any kind as kind of a tapestry constantly being woven and any fights or hurts or grudges are a mar in that pattern, you know, the thread gets tangled. And hopefully once you look at the large tapestry, you can look at it and go, oh, that's what makes this special, which makes it unique. But sometimes there's such a large mar, so many errors in the pattern that it's not worth continuing on the tapestry. And you have to accept that you will always be that person. You will be frozen in time for somebody as the villain in their story.
0: Your necessary delusion. Your necessary delusion. Your necessary delusion. delusion. Why do you keep lying? Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here with me, Earth Monster. I'm your host, Matt LeBlanc, and one time I was viewing an apartment that I was thinking about renting, and the building manager made so many bad friends jokes about my name that even though I loved the apartment and the neighborhood and the price, I just thought, I'm never going to be able to live next door to this guy. So I left. This is Your Necessary Delusion, the storytelling show that celebrates vulnerability and speaks to the darkest, messiest little parts of your heart about the lies that we tell ourselves every day, the stories that we use to get out of bed, the fantasies that we let propel our lives. A big warm welcome to Madison for sharing her story today. Madison is a friend and has been very supportive of the show until finally she said, I know what story I need to tell. And I am so glad that she chose to talk about it because unfortunately, I think it is very relatable to a lot of women. Madison's the TV writer and her story starts back when she was in college going to film school at UT Austin.
1: I would say I was in my second or third year of film school. So UT Austin is very focused on like indie films, that whole indie vibe. Uh, I was told that I shouldn't write rom-coms because they were dumb. So definitely there was a focus on anything out of the ordinary.
0: And just for the hell of it, indie, meaning characteristic of the deliberately unpolished or uncommercial style of small independent pop groups. So with the exception of the rom-coms, this was all pretty aligned with what Madison was trying to emulate in herself at the time.
1: I think I was very wild and free and joyous and passionate and in a way, like the ultimate version of myself, like, I think I delude myself to being like, that was the best version of me. No, I was like a self centered asshole. But you know, I think that like, top line, what I strip away all the reality and just look at like, Oh, I was just cutting and running when anything got like difficult. Or I had to like, actually be a real person. (laughs) (laughs) But I was, I was very happy. I was Pretty blinkered. Blinkered, meaning she was wearing a lot of blinders. But enjoying that I felt like I had any sort of control over other people. But I was definitely a Manic Pixie Dream Girl where I thought the entire world was my playground.
0: Manic Pixie Dream Girl. It's sort of shaken out to be a complicated term. Film critic Nathan Rabin, who coined the term Manic Pixie Dream Girl, said that the character exists in movies solely in the fevered imagination of sensitive writer-directors to teach broodingly soulful young men to embrace life and its infinite mysteries and adventures. So, essentially, a two-dimensional female character used to inspire men in movies. But maybe the definition changes for the women who tried to emulate this character in real life. Unpack Manic Pixie Dream Girl for me a little bit. What were your images? Like, were you watching things that you were emulating? What does that title mean to you?
1: I was quirky and it was the age of like Garden State and all those quirky female protagonists. And I think now there's a lot of discourse about how they are a male fantasy. Yep. But having been a Manic Pixie Dream Girl... I think what's appealing about that lifestyle is that I think about closer a lot. And it's not a movie I enjoyed, but Natalie Portman is a manic pixie dream girl. Totally. And it's because that's what makes her feel powerful. So what makes her feel alive. And then once somebody ruins it, once somebody like ruins that illusion, it's over. You're gone. You're someone else to someone else. So for me, I was the lead character. The men are not the leads. <laughs> the men are just there for fun.
0: I'm not trying to make a big statement about manic pixie dream girls. And I'm really not interested in your thoughts about them either. (laughs) we're still just dissecting the ideas that Madison had about herself. So for all intents and purposes, Madison functioned as a fun, cut-and-run type 20-year-old because it made her feel powerful. And when I say it flat out like that, I really don't see how that makes her any different from most 20-year-olds, right?
1: I was hanging out with a bunch of different groups and basically, yeah, I liked the thrill of the chase of like, oh, I can be this kind of person.
0: She was still practicing certain things about herself, like all of us do when we're 20.
1: I was in like a small group of 20 people in this screenwriting class, advanced screenwriting. You know, it was like a workshop where everybody would read pages and then everybody would give notes on that.
0: And who were you in that group?
1: Oh, I was probably very obnoxious. Um, No, I mean, I always did the reading. I always had notes, hopefully insightful, but like maybe just you know, how everybody is young and thinks that their ideas are the best ones. Uh, So, you know, I think I was suffering from the delusion of everyone who's young. I'm the center of the universe.
0: Are we sure that only young people suffer from that delusion?
1: I wanted to be a writer slash actor. I like really wanted to act and I had to move to L.A. to have that delusion be broken. Like I wasn't that good.
0: (laughs) But that revelation wouldn't come until a couple years later. For now, she was an aspiring actor slash writer in film school.
1: I loved writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was sort of my first taste of, oh, this is what it's like to be kind of in a writer's room or You'd get feedback. I was writing very heavy dramas, you know, that I had no business writing as a 20-year-old.
0: It was a relatively small group of aspiring writers in the class, workshopping scripts, trying to work out their biggest and baddest ideas on paper, or rather in final draft. That's the software used to write screenplays. And it was in this class that Madison first crossed paths with.
1: So honestly, this was a guy who hardly talked in class. I don't think I said two words to him. Like, I remember his script was something about 1930s gangsters, but like, I never sat near him. I didn't speak to him. I hardly remember him in the class at all. I mean, he didn't make an impression.
0: Can you remember kind of like what he looked like or his vibe at all?
1: Uh, Quiet glasses,
0: quiet glasses,
1: Um, just like if he had just pictured a normal white guy who fades into the background that, you know, was that my necessary delusion that he didn't not to say he didn't matter, but like he just was he wasn't on my radar. He didn't didn't speak up, didn't speak to me, didn't I don't know. And maybe that's me excising. Like, did he give notes to people in class? I don't remember, but uh, he didn't make much of an impression I don't think I would remember him at all if if this didn't happen.
0: If you're wondering what this is, just hang on. We'll get there soon. Very soon.
1: So I went to this barbecue at my friend Rick's house, and that's not his real name. So I was there with Rick and my kind of acquaintance, Ashley, who they went to high school with. And I saw this guy from my screenwriting class.
0: Quiet glasses.
1: We had, I don't know, a very acquaintance level conversation. Oh, you went to the same high school cool.
0: Are you following this? Quiet Glasses had gone to high school with Madison's friends, Rick and Ashley, not their real names. The interaction was surfacey and fast and she went about her life.
1: Went about my life. A couple of days later, I get this email from an anonymous account. I want to say that the name was something like Jeremy Scott. This was a completely made up person.
0: She didn't know a Jeremy Scott.
1: The subject was Rick, Madison and Ashley. And I went, hmm, okay. So I opened it. And it is a four-page erotic screenplay wherein Rick, Ashley, and I have a threesome in a cabin.
0: It was graphic. It was shocking. It was nothing Madison had ever imagined for herself, and now it was being drawn out in vivid detail for her to imagine unexpectedly. She sat in front of the computer as the pit in her stomach grew quickly.
1: I I was... I was so horrified. I was like, he was putting me in a situation I would never be in. He was putting me in a like explicitly sexual situation, which I didn't feel comfortable with, which is to this day why I don't like fan fiction, because I'm like, please don't. Nope. Right. But it was like written in final draft. So I knew it had to be somebody with screenwriting programs. Like I had no idea who sent this because I didn't know a Jeremy Scott. So I like called Rick and I was like, hey, did you get an email? Did Ashley get an email? No, it was just me.
0: Rick and Ashley had not gotten similar emails and Madison did not share what she had received with them.
1: I held a lot of shame about it. Like, I didn't tell my best friends about it. I definitely didn't tell Rick and Ashley what happened. Like, I was just like, okay, cool. Well, if you didn't get this email, great, bye.
0: Can you describe where you were when you found the first email?
1: I think I was in...
0: Were you living in a dorm?
1: Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I remember looking at my computer, but everything else around that is hazy. No, I guess it had to be a dorm because I remember pacing around the dorm calling Rick to ask if he had gotten this. But it's so weird that like you have one central focus and then everything else around it is very blurry.
0: Do you ever get surprised by how much of your own life you forget? Receiving this email was a vivid moment. And just because we're not sharing any of the gory details about what Madison read doesn't mean that she can't remember that part. It just means that those details are not important to repeat for our story. Also... It's the feeling that the email gave her that has hung on to her so tightly for the 15 years since then. You're not telling any friends. You're like basically like inside you're feeling shame about this already.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So what do you do next?
1: Yeah, I felt an incredible amount of shame about it. And I kept it all inside, which, you know, never helps. But I was 19 or 20 and this was, you know, 15 years ago. So nobody was really talking about hey, like, this isn't your fault. You didn't choose this. This was somebody else who has done this.
0: 15 years ago, when most of society lived under the necessary delusion that if we didn't talk about misogyny and harassment like this, if we ignored female voices and just let boys be boys, then everything would be just fine.
1: So I just really kept the shame inside. I kind of felt like, well, somehow, like, I'm putting out this vibe or I did something to warrant this.
0: She hadn't done anything, obviously. She couldn't imagine who would have sent it. But over the course of the next few days, she began to put it together. The timing had been a bit of a tip-off. She'd just been at the barbecue with Rick and Ashley, so it was potentially someone who saw them there. Also, the email had been written in final draft, so it had to be a screenwriting student. It didn't take long to deduce. Quiet. Glasses.
1: And so I was like, oh my god, it has to be this person. I think I was just really in shock.
0: But she didn't feel like she had anything constructive to do with the revelation. All she had was this horrible, guilty feeling that made her feel small. She doesn't remember a lot about finishing that semester in the screenwriting class. Maybe she felt dread every time she had to go. Maybe she didn't share notes on people's scripts so much anymore. Maybe she didn't talk at all. She was never proud of this area of her life after that. And so she never really told this story.
1: I remember the next semester going into, I think it was a producing class, and sitting down and he came in afterwards and sat behind me.
0: She froze when she saw him walk in, and she stared straight forward as he planted himself explicitly out of her sight line. She couldn't turn around, she couldn't pay attention to the lecture anymore. She could feel his eyes on her and she imagined the horrible story from his email and felt the same overwhelming, out of control, guilty, shameful, secret, anxious feeling.
1: And I just was so, I was like so overwhelmed with like this. I didn't want him watching me. I didn't want him looking at me. I like got up and left.
0: She picked up her things quickly and made a stiff getaway for the door. And as she cut and ran out of the classroom, with the panic building inside of her, he stared after, watching, through quiet glasses.
1: I almost failed the class. I think I skipped a lot of those classes. Uh, And I think about, you know, I'm not traumatized by it now, but I think about all the people who, you know, what if I had dropped out? because of this. Right. So somehow I have like avoided him <laughs> for, you know, the rest of most of college and I moved to LA.
0: How do you think receiving that first script from him? How do you think that affected your image of yourself, the manic pixie dream girl?
1: I don't know if I'm putting these pieces together now <laughs> or if I put them together then, but now I I like don't like to be looked at sexually. I I don't like to now I feel like, please, no one look at me. Please don't think about me in this light at all. So much of this experience feels so separate from the rest of my life. I think I've just taken it right out. and <laughs> made it its own thing, uh, probably to protect myself. Sure. Um, and so that it like doesn't poison any of my other memories. Wow. But I received another email from him. Old Jeremy Scott. I think this had to be before I moved to L.A. So, yeah, a couple months later, maybe a year later, I receive another email. And it's another four-page screenplay. But this time, it's just me. And in it, I am asleep in bed. And Edward Cullen comes into my room and he's, like, watching me.
0: Reading an email about someone watching her sleep. Instinctively, Madison shifted her eyes around her quiet bedroom. Could it be possible he was watching her?
1: Edward Cullen, the vampire from Twilight, I think this had to be when it was very popular. Edward Cullen was in love with me, and I kept rejecting him. So Edward Cullen, the unkillable vampire, in this script kills himself because of me. And at this point, again, this has been, I don't know, a year or so since the first one.
0: So the story had been growing in her own imagination for a year. And like a snowball, it had gathered mass and momentum. It no longer felt like just a couple of emails. It felt like a web that she was stuck inside, like someone could be watching or following at any time, counting her actions, keeping score, and always waiting for the right moment to... (sighs) She didn't know. She really didn't know much at all. She didn't even know if she had the right quiet glasses. She was just guessing. Jeremy Scott could be anyone.
1: I've told no one about that first one. I'm not telling anybody about the second one.
0: Had she done something, anything to elicit these threatening emails? No, but that's how it felt. That was the delusion, that if he was going to the trouble of sending them, then somehow she had must have done something to deserve them.
1: Of course, being like young and isolating this incident from my support group, you know, I I was thinking, I guess I'm an awful person. I've caused this unkillable vampire who I guess he sees himself as Edward Cullen to kill himself. I've never talked to this person more than in passing. Why is he obsessing over me? Why is he putting me in this light? And yeah, so, you know, obviously pretty scared. I moved to LA. I think, great. I'm, I'm away forever. Da, da, delusion.
0: New city, new Madison. New delusion to help her feel separated and safe from the experience. Unfortunately, this was well into the 2000s, and the internet was a powerful, very commonly used tool. He was sending emails after all.
1: I remember being at my internship here in L.A. and getting another email, which, you know, obviously, oh, emails, you don't have to be in the same space. Why did I think I could get away?
0: Because that was the delusion that felt necessary to move on.
1: But this time, he was like, hey, I want to know that you've been reading these. Put this random assortment of letters as your Facebook status. So now there were, like, demands, which was very scary. Uh, And, like, I got pretty scared. Like, oh, my God, what if he's followed me to Los Angeles? Should I call the cops? Like, what is this? So in this third screenplay, I'm walking with God through a desert and... I ask him so many questions that are very annoying. I annoy God so much he kills himself.
0: Just letting that premise sink in for a minute. So these are not sexual scripts then. These are just like other, just putting you in a scenario.
1: Yeah, the last two. Yeah, I mean, even that first one, he wasn't in it. Why would he write a threesome fantasy about three people he knows, not himself, and then send it to one of them? I don't understand the logic to this day. It's disturbing. (laughs) And then to continue to send these, I don't know, I guess fanfics to me of these scenarios where I am either so cold and rejecting or so annoying that these unkillable creatures, unkillable people kill themselves.
0: Right. So what did you do about the demands?
1: Well, I didn't adhere to them. I didn't put that in my my status. I think that's when I called my I called my best friend and I was like, "Hey, this thing has been happening for years. I'm pretty scared." I don't remember how they reacted. I feel like it was a little dismissive. I feel like I don't I don't remember. I think my memory is a little bit wiped from the insanity of being harassed by screenplay.
0: And remember, so much of this drama is happening in her head. Her delusions getting away from her. Because who could blame her? Every time this creepy quiet glasses has a bad day or gets rejected by a girl or gets horny, he just sits down in front of his computer and drops a little bomb into Madison's inbox. He plants it like a little delusional seed for her to wonder about, to fester on. The email is just a jumping off point for her imagination to fill in the blanks and wonder how seriously to take the emails as threats. To wonder if he's watching her somehow, or wonder about herself, her own behavior, and if it is at all reflective, somehow, of any of the awful things that he's saying about her.
1: I wish I had the perspective to be like, who the fuck cares about this guy? But I definitely let it affect me of, why does he see me this way? We don't interact. Does he know something about me that I don't?
0: You can't deny how powerful and toxic that delusion is. Does this stranger know something about me that I don't know about myself? I feel like I've been particularly susceptible to this kind of thinking when I've kept something so private that I haven't given myself a chance to put the words out in the air. I've just left my ideas to grow in the vacuum of my mind where the delusion can spin out of control.
1: I kind of went, okay, I'm in Los Angeles. I've checked up on this person. He is not in Los Angeles. So I'm physically safe. He is not coming after me. And I never got another letter. I never got another email.
0: Except she kind of did.
1: Like four years later, I'm home for Christmas.
0: Back in Texas, the Bible Belt.
1: I'm in bed on my computer. You know, it's late night because I'm a night owl. And I get a Facebook message from this guy.
0: Quiet glasses. The quiet glasses from her screenwriting program. She had been right the whole time.
1: Saying... Hey, I don't know if you ever knew it was me, but I I sent you those things. I'm really sorry. I was going through like a drug and alcohol addiction. I, I shouldn't have taken it out on you. I'm so sorry. And so I think by this point I had turned it into a joke. Like you do. Because the shame of it was too much that I just said, okay, this is a ridiculous situation.
0: That had literally been going on for years at this point. With a person who she had talked to once.
1: I'm just going to turn the whole thing into a joke. So I would tell it as if it were a joke.
0: To other people?
1: Yeah. of like, So I was sexually harassed via screenplay. Like, hey, isn't this funny? I just really need to tell people about this experience, but it makes people uncomfortable and they don't understand how traumatic it was. So I'm just going to make it a joke. That's palatable. That's what people are okay with. But I think I definitely needed to tell people what happened. I I had kept it inside for so long that like nobody, nobody knew what happened.
0: Oof, how many times have you used a joke as a way of softening the truth? Saying what you really wanted to say, except without being wrapped in the thin veil of a joke, it would seem too real to just spit out. For me, I think it would be more efficient to measure this in terms of decades. (laughs) I think I've gotten better about it in the past couple of years, but self-awareness is so tricky. I use jokes to say all kinds of things. Now that I'm talking about it, that actually might have been the intention of most of my jokes. Not to get a laugh, but to soften the delivery of the truth.
1: Because I think to laugh at it was easier than to deal with any of the emotions that I really had. And it seemed like people didn't want to hear about it being pretty traumatizing for a young woman. So I just turned it into a joke. I'm a comedy writer now that like makes sense. Right. And so by the time he emailed me or I guess it was a Facebook message, I had deluded myself to saying I'm over it. I'm over it. It's funny.
0: Even though that's not how it felt at all.
1: So I think I was like, oh, yeah, I, I did know. Thanks for apologizing. I appreciate that. Hope you're doing better. And this is here's where I was like, aha, I'm taking charge of the situation. I think deep down I knew that I was not really okay about it, but I was like, I'm gonna take charge of the situation.
0: She couldn't just let the message disappear into the history of her messenger, because if she did that, if she did nothing, then the story would just end with her as the victim and this terrible feeling in the pit of her stomach. She didn't wanna be a victim, she didn't ask for this. So her writer brain did some quick creative problem solving.
1: Now, if I can befriend him, then I'm a good person, and I'm in charge. Delusion, yeah. So I'm like, it's funny. Ha ha ha. Whatever.
0: It's almost like if you try to befriend him, then you're not submitting to being a victim.
1: Yeah. I think that's exactly what it, I think that definitely. Yeah. It, I think that's exactly right. That I felt like his victim. And if I was his friend instead, then somehow that put me in a different category. And I don't I don't know. Like, so I think I had envisioned that I was some sort of object of his obsession for years.
0: And so she was taking control. She was turning the tables in her favor. And for a moment, it felt powerful. She was brushing it off, taking the high road. She wasn't letting him make her a victim. But then
1: he writes me like a four page apology screenplay.
0: You're kidding.
1: No. Haha, Now it's an inside joke.
0: What was the apology screenplay? Do you remember that one?
1: I have no recollection.
0: So he writes you the apology one, and you've decided you're going to befriend him. How do you go about that?
1: I, I I don't know. We just, I guess, start chatting.
0: A lot of the details are hazy here. You can understand this isn't a story that she ever liked to tell. It's a part of her life that she tried not to think about, the way that we protect ourselves from the ruthless, clumsy, relentless progression of real life. But she feigned friendship, and he got very comfortable laughing off the way that he had treated her. And maybe he was actually getting what he had wanted the whole time. Attention.
1: And eventually he asks me to give notes on his screenplay and his stand-up, and the jokes are pretty offensive. I think I was like, okay, well, you can give me notes on this.
0: All of a sudden they're working together? It felt wrong to do him a favor that was unreciprocated, so she sent him one of her scripts to get some notes too, even though she didn't want his notes. She just wanted him to go away. But she didn't know that. So instead, she spent time attaching files to emails and reading through his scripts and writing in the margins. And at the same time, she didn't feel good about any of it.
1: But I was like, okay, you know what? I've forgiven this person. And because in my mind, if you forgive somebody, you're moving on with that relationship.
0: Meaning you are choosing to keep a relationship. Or in this case, begin a relationship. Do you remember the themes of the stand-up or anything that he sent you that was... You know, you said it was offensive. Do you remember kind of what he was sort of dealing with?
1: I think there was a joke about fucking a camel. Something about like, oh, eventually one day people will be like, why aren't you fucking camels? You guys were so backwards or something like so stupid that I was like, what? This is just like edge lord humor. That's the only one I remember because I just went, this is maybe not to my taste. I don't know. That and
0: happened. what was your feedback then? Did you tell me you didn't like it?
1: I mean, I definitely gave him notes. I don't. I don't know if he took them. I definitely was like, I don't know about this one. Um, yeah, I don't know why this was like an insane thing to do. Of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in control now. Let me befriend this person who thought it was a great idea to write an explicitly sexual fantasy as a screenplay, not including themselves, and send it to someone involved anonymously. And I kept congratulating myself for like being a better person and like really moving on. He asked me to be on his podcast once and I like kind of had a panic attack about it. So I was like, oh, no, thank you. I know that I went to Austin once and he was like, oh, yeah, we should hang out. And like I kept getting like panic attacks, basically having to speak to this person. And I was like, just push through it. You're a better person. You're like a good person and like a good person forgives people. And like, yeah, yeah. I mean, you said you, you would do this. So like. You should follow through. I think part of it was like you don't want to be the annoying person who makes God kill themselves. You don't want to make Edward Cullen kill themselves.
0: This really is the necessary delusion. Can you feel the stakes? She needed the story because without it, all she had was that terrible sinking feeling. So did you meet with him?
1: No. I was I like <laughs> I was like, I'm sorry, I'm so busy. Like I kept trying to find excuses, but like I wouldn't admit to myself that like you don't need this person in your life. Why are you keeping this, like, friendship tapestry going? There was no tapestry to begin with. Right. You didn't remember him. You didn't remember he existed.
0: Until he asserted himself in your life through unsolicited, inappropriate, threatening emails.
1: I kept that going for years, thinking like, yeah, yeah, I've moved on. It really wasn't until the Me Too movement, and I think I had posted something about it, and he commented on it. I I think I had posted a Me Too story about being, yeah, sexually harassed in college via screenplay. And he commented, he commented on, on it. Yeah. And I I think that was when I, I like, started crying. I was, like, calling my best friends about, like, I, like, can't see his name. Like, it makes me so upset.
0: Do you remember his comment? I think nature? it was
1: something about, like, hey, that was me like, he has never not owned up to what he did. He has never, like, pretended that, you know, he didn't do this. But I think I finally realized, like, I had never moved on. Why am I doing this to myself? Why, why did I try and prove that I was, like, in control of anything? I had never, like, accepted that it wasn't my fault.
0: Because she had never really talked it out. Beyond trying to cram it into the light as a joke... She'd never really let herself focus on how it all made her feel or dissected her own reaction until now.
1: So, you know, I messaged him and I was like, hey, I'm so sorry.
0: Started with an apology. This feels like it's still rooted in the delusion, right?
1: This is actually pretty traumatic for me. I know that I've like tried to be friends and I think I've really repressed a lot of how this made me feel. I think I told him about leaving class and he was like, I remember that day. I remember you leaving. You know, I I think I was pretty honest about how he made me feel and I want him to move past this. I want him to be a better person, but I don't have to be in his life for him to do that. And he doesn't need to be in my life to do that. I think, like I said about the tapestry, he's frozen in that moment for me and I can accept that he has changed and he is different and that's fine, but I don't need to continue with him in my life. I don't know. It was some kind of crazy delusion about. Yes, if I do this, then it's behind me.
0: (laughs) Well, she's certainly not alone in this. Can you think of a delusion that you created for yourself to make you believe that you were moving on from something traumatic? Can you? Posting on Facebook had brought the whole thing into light. She was finally looking at the whole tapestry laid out in front of her, and she was ready to leave quiet glasses as an ugly mar, a villain frozen in her past. She told him she had to block him.
1: When I was like, I can't have you in my life, I said that to him. Mm -hmm. He was cool about it. And I was like, can I just ask? Because I think this is something that comes up all the time for me. And I've never really understood it. But why me? Why did you do this to me? Why did you pick me? Matt, I don't know if this is a better answer or the worst possible answer. It wasn't about me. He liked Ashley from high school. I was just there. And I, man, what a mind, what a mind bomb. (laughs) Because it was never about me. Why, why did I have to go through this when it wasn't about me?
0: Two things stand out to me from you saying that. Oh boy, I think I might be about to mansplain this, but I promise I was just trying to figure it out out loud for myself. I mean, it was about him. Yeah, yes. The whole thing was a power game. It's about him. And the other thing that's really stands out is that, you know, when you were describing the tapestry before and letting people get frozen in that image of like who they were in that moment, I feel like just from the way that you're telling the story now, I feel like a part of you let the image of yourself get frozen in that moment.
1: Yeah. And I think I was trying to change the pattern so much that, you know, I I think I was desperate to, to try and change things change how I felt about things without doing the the real work of like sitting with it and going, this isn't my fault. I did nothing to earn this. I did nothing to bring this upon myself.
0: And what do you hope for yourself?
1: I mean, I kind of hope to get that, that carefree college vibe back. But with, you know, the knowledge I have gained about life, I think I would just like to have that that pre-trauma feeling back about myself. I think, you know, back then I was like very confident, maybe delusionally so, but things like this chip away at that. Things like this make you smaller. And I feel small, much smaller than I feel like I should be. I'm not actually upset about it. I just, I'm a weeper. No. Anytime I talk about, anytime I talk about emotions, I'm like, Ugh. I think I've been dealing with a lot lately especially in the pandemic this like I've always kind of thought of m- myself as like upbeat and joyful and uh always up for a good time always laughing and I don't feel that way anymore so I think I feel a real sense of loss I would like to find old Madison again like if I could just go back to Man at Pixie Dream Girl like I mean I know it's not a real personality but you know it's a nice escape <laughs> Or you just get to be whoever you want for a short amount of time, and then you're gone, baby.
0: I want to thank Madison for her story today, for trusting us to listen to it, and for trusting me to produce it. I mean, who really needs a straight white male trying to pick out the truth in a story like this, right? It made me think a lot about the tapestries that I've lived on, created with other people, and some of the ways that I've become frozen in time as the worst version of myself in their eyes. And even more than that, it has been a much needed reminder to not get frozen in time in the ways that I see myself. Because after I have felt the true weight of my regrets, after I have accepted them of their lessons, it's important to keep a close relationship with myself, continue to weave my tapestry through forgiveness. Thank you for being here with me today, Earth Monster. If you have love for the show, we always appreciate good reviews on Apple Podcasts. That's the Purple Podcast app. Or you can send us some love on Venmo at Your Necessary Delusion. If you're really connected with today's story and you have a little something of your own to add, then please reach out to us on our voicemail at 323-540-4540. Or you can email us at yournecessarydelusion at gmail.com to set up a time to record a story of your own. We will be back next week with more epic, everyday stories of success and redemption. Until next time.